think we're about ready to begin this morning. Would you settle in and join me in prayer? Father, thank you for the great power of your word. Thank you for the ways that you speak to us. We want to hear you speak right now as we open the pages of this great book that you've given to us. Would you give us ears to hear what you have to say to us this morning? We need your help, Father. We confess that freely. We are distracted and distractible. Our minds wander. Our hearts wander. And we need you to hold us steady. We need you to keep us along the journey of life that you've called us into. So we pray that you would do that this morning. That you would exercise your keeping protective power over our lives today. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As recently as 2017, polls suggested that over half of professing Christians in this country believe that the Bible teaches that God helps those who help themselves. Now, we all know that polls can be misleading and not really representative of reality, but I've run into enough people, both inside the church and outside the church, who either explicitly say something like that or, more commonly, live like it's true. If you weren't sure, I've already tipped my hand. The Bible emphatically does not teach this. We could say that the Bible actually teaches just the opposite. God helps the helpless. God helps those who cannot help themselves. God helps those who know that they cannot help themselves. But it might be important to know why this idea is so prevalent in our country. The idea didn't appear out of nowhere. In fact, the idea seems to have developed and become popular within the realm of Greek philosophy as early as 400 years before Jesus' time. But this exact wording, God helps those who help themselves, doesn't seem to be an exact quote from any known Greek literature. Instead, this precise wording comes from an English politician who lived in London in the 1600s named Algernon Sidney. He was finally executed for treason, primarily for writing a treatise entitled Discourses Concerning Government. This document sharply criticized the absolute monarchy of England at the time and promised, promoted the idea of government by the consent of the governed. Sound familiar? This document criticized that reality and he was executed for that. And it's in chapter 2 of this treatise that we find the famous phrase, God helps those who help themselves for the first time in history, as far as we can tell. Now, average citizens of America today have never heard of Algernon Sidney. Or if they did, his name went in one ear and out the other while they were sitting in a high school or college civics or social studies class. So how did this phrase gain lasting currency? Well, this treatise heavily influenced the founders of this nation. Some have even referred to Sidney's Discourses Concerning Government as the textbook of the American Revolution. The false idea that God helps those who help themselves is one of the ideas that shaped the founding of this country. 
The man who made it famous in America, Benjamin Franklin. It is one of eight sayings mentioning God in Franklin's collection of pithy sayings called Poor Richard's Almanac. When we come to the Psalms and to the Scriptures more generally, we find people regularly crying out for help, admitting their helplessness. Even some of the most powerful, industrious, ingenious people in biblical history saw themselves in desperate and constant need of divine assistance. How often do you call out for help to God? And I'm not talking about some generic feeling of frustration where you whine about your circumstances to other people. I'm saying, when you pray, how often do you find yourself saying the word help to God? However often you think it is, may I suggest that the reality is that you should be doing that more frequently. And if you really can't think of the last time where you actively, consciously, and emotionally pleaded for help from God, is it because you think you've got to do something before God will answer your prayer and provide the help you need? Do you really think you've got to help yourself or get your act together or figure things out up to a point before you can ask your heavenly Father to provide the help that you need? Psalm 121 begins as a reflection of a psalmist who knows with full confidence the source of his help and protection. This psalmist knows that help cannot come from inside me. Help must come from outside, from the Lord Himself. This writer is acutely aware of reality, that the challenges and difficulties on the journey of life are far too much, far too dangerous, far too confusing to be handled by ourselves. What begins as a reflection on God as the source of my help flows into a magnificent reflection on God's commitment to protect and guard and keep us at all times, in all places, now and forevermore. So let's read this brief psalm and worship the protector of pilgrims together. Psalm 121. A song of ascents. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from Yahweh, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Yahweh is your keeper. Yahweh is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. Yahweh will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. Yahweh will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Now as we begin looking at this psalm, it is one of the songs of ascents. Psalm 120 through Psalm 120. 34, so 15 psalms, kind of a mini collection within the book of Psalms, are all labeled as a song of ascents, a song of going up, 
some of them were written by David. Most of them were anonymous and they were collected together in this little mini collection, it seems, for the purpose of pilgrimages to Jerusalem. If you remember, the Mosaic Law commanded the citizens of Israel to journey to Jerusalem specifically three times a year, every year. And that means wherever they lived throughout the territory of Israel, they were summoned three times a year to march to Zion, to Jerusalem, to celebrate a festival, to offer particular sacrifices three times in a year. And it seems that they developed this tradition, if you will, of singing these psalms together as they made their pilgrimage. Some of them, it may take a week of walking, a week of marching in a caravan to get there, and along the way, they're going to sing together. And this is the content of their singing. And so they are songs of ascent, because in the Bible, no matter where you're coming from, if you're going to Jerusalem, you're going up. And that's not a statement about geography or topography. That's a theological statement. Wherever you're going, if you're going to Jerusalem, wherever you're coming from, you're going up because you're going up to meet with God in Jerusalem. And so going up is all about going to meet with God and to engage with Him in a very special way during these great festivals during the year. And so this is one of those pilgrimage psalms. And it begins in verses 1 and 2 with these, this reflection on Yahweh as the true source of help. The true source of help. He begins by raising his eyes and looking up and he looks at the mountains or the hills. Now this is probably quite literally as he's approaching Jerusalem in the landscape there in the Middle East, Jerusalem is surrounded by elevated places, hills and mountains. And there are places as you go near Jerusalem that begin to be much more difficult to traverse. Think about it, as you're climbing up a mountain, things can get a little bit unsteady and a little bit complicated. And so as he nears the end of the journey, he looks up and he sees the hills, the mountains, as a threatening place. A place that he wonders, how am I going to get over those? How am I going to get through this last pass to make sure that I get to my destination? How am I going to get there? So he looks up and he sees the hills and then he raises the question in the second line, from where does my help come? Now, if you're reading the King James Version, you read it a little bit differently here. It sounds like in the King James Version that the source of help is actually coming from the hills or from the mountains. I lift up my eyes to the hills or the mountains from whence my help comes. And this understanding there is is a the King James Version translators kind of misunderstood that there's actually a question here. And they were following Martin Luther in his German translation and earlier Jerome in his Latin translation who didn't recognize the question indicator there in the Hebrew. And they're just following that. But he's actually raising the question as he looks up to this dangerous traversed pathway through the mountains and he wonders, how am I going to make it to the other side? And he knows the answer. He's raising a rhetorical question. He's writing poetry here. He's reflecting out of his own heart about what he knows to be true. He knows the only way he's going to get through there, the only way he's going to get over, is if God himself 
gets him through and gets him over the pass. He has to, in one sense, he has to look up above the hills to find God to be the one who will help him. If you think about the the ancient world and the way mountains and hilly passes were, they were often places of danger and threat because they were sparsely populated. There weren't people who lived in these areas. Instead, you've got wild animals that are there that would threaten to attack you, to attack your animals. If you're taking sacrificial animals to the temple, you got to keep them blameless. you got to keep them spotless. And that means you've got to keep them away from predators. And so that's a danger that they face as they go through these hilly passes. Also, robbers were known to hide out in the caves in the mountains, knowing that people were going to be traveling through, and they could attack and steal all your stuff or kill your children. This is serious danger, heavy threat. As they come to the last leg of the journey to get to their destination, there is great danger, and they wonder, how am I going to make it to the other side? And the answer is God himself must show up. God himself, Yahweh, who is the maker, the creator of the heavens and the earth. If he made the heavens and the earth, that means he made the mountains. And that means he's in control of the mountains and everything that lives inside the mountains. And so he's expressing his confidence here. He's expressing his faith here that God himself is going to get him through the other side. Now, we take this psalm as a pilgrim psalm. It's very much the idea of going on a journey. And it probably has this specific idea of marching to Jerusalem. But it's applicable beyond that. When we recognize that we're all on a journey, we're actually on the same journey that they were. They were marching to Zion. And so are we. The journey of life for the Christian, for the follower of Jesus, is to follow Jesus all the way to Zion, to the new Jerusalem. They were going to the earthly Jerusalem to meet with God in the temple, but we are going to the heavenly Jerusalem. That is our destination, but we're on that same journey moving along, and isn't our journey through life fraught with challenges? Opposition from the outside, broken bodies right here at home, our minds failing, our emotions failing, our relationships breaking, evil people doing evil things, a broken world to suffer in. That's the normal Christian life. That's the normal life of the Christian pilgrim going through this life. How are we going to make it to the destination? How are we going to make it to the new Jerusalem? Only as God helps us. Only as the creator of everything, the one who sustains everything. If you remember Colossians 1, Jesus is the one who is exalted, is the one who holds all things together. That means that he's holding your life together. And he's making sure every step of the way that you keep going in the right direction. And he is the one who will ultimately ensure that you make it across the finish line. And you make it to that final destination. He is actively at work. To protect you. We'll talk more about that in just a bit. We move into verses 3 and 4. What we see is a picture of Yahweh as the sleepless shepherd. The sleepless shepherd. But you need to notice here as you look at these verses that there's a change. There's a voice change. Verses 1 and 2, the speaker is, I, I, I lift up my eyes. Where does my help come from? But now it's talking to you. And so what we probably have here is a a song that's written to be sung as a duet where you have two voices. And so the the initial person raises the question, how am I going to get over those hills? Where's my help going to come from? And he knows the answer. The answer is God. And then another voice comes to strengthen his confidence, to encourage him, to build him up by reminding him of who God is, 
how Yahweh himself has committed to keep him. You'll notice that word keep in the ESV is repeated six times in verses 3 through 8. Some of your versions will use the word guard or protect or preserve even. But the idea is this idea of constant protection. And that's the main theme of the psalm here. And so he listens. The initial speaker listens as another person walking on the journey with him comes along and says, let me strengthen your faith. Let me remind you of who God is and how he is committed to protect you. And that's exactly what you and I need too. I can't tell you the number of times where someone else spoke into my life and reminded me of the truth that I already know in my head. But hearing it from another voice, a voice besides my own, it just lands differently. It just impacts in a different way to hear somebody else remind me of the truth that I'm kind of already maybe mulling over in my head, but another voice outside of me tells me that that's true. It just does something. I don't know how to explain it other than that. There's a great power there. And I think the reality is that God often uses other people to build our faith. That's why we should be talking so much together about God and about the gospel and about what he's done for us. We need to be reminding each other of those truths. Because every single one of us is incredibly forgetful. Incredibly forgetful. The other voice here comes in and speaks in these metaphorical terms, referring to God as the sleepless shepherd. He begins in verse 3 by promising, reminding him, he will not let your foot be moved, or he will not let your foot trip up and stumble. Think about climbing a mountain. If you've noticed the picture in the background, this is an actual photograph that I took at the base of a mountain in Colorado. It's the only mountain I've ever climbed. It's the only mountain I will ever climb. Most definitely. It is Mount Uncompagre in Colorado, and it's a 14,300-foot mountain. Never climbed one before. I won't climb one again, but I did make it and come back to tell the tale, obviously. But standing at the base of that mountain looking up, it's intimidating to know that i got to get from here, way down here on the ground, and get all the way up there and back again is terribly daunting. I wasn't doing it alone. I had companions to help me on the journey who had done it before. And that was incredibly helpful. But as you're going up a mountain, any of you have ever done that in any way, you know that there might be places where the ground isn't exactly smooth and paved. There are places where you're in great danger of tripping and falling potentially to your death. So this is not a light thing to talk about. This is a very serious reality. The the psalmist is seeing the reality that life brings severe dangers, genuine threats to our lives. And he's saying, God won't let you stumble along those ways. God will keep you from stumbling to your doom, is the idea. And then he starts building out this keeping or protecting metaphor. He who keeps you. He who keeps you. This exact word and form of this word is used in one other place, and it is a shepherd term. It's used in 1 Samuel 17, 20, the story where David is about to go face Goliath. His family sends him out to go uh, to go check on his brothers who are out there scared senseless as they stand before Goliath and the Philistine army. And as David leaves... The text says in 1 Samuel 17, 20, that he left a keeper in charge of his sheep. 
And so this idea of one who keeps you, your guardian, your keeper, is a shepherd. A shepherd who preserves you as his sheep. That's the reality that the psalmist is working with here, I think. And the metaphor is that he doesn't fall asleep. He doesn't slumber. It's a word for to doze off. He doesn't get so tired that he just kind of fades out. Like some of you might before the hour is up in this building. And that's okay. (laughs) But God doesn't do that. He doesn't nod off. He doesn't nod off. And he goes one step further in verse 4. Behold, he who keeps Israel, so the guardian of Israel as a people, the protector of God's people as a whole, is also your individual personal protector. You know, sometimes we ask the question about, are there such a thing as guardian angels? And I, I don't know. There might be a teeny tiny biblical evidence that there might be, but who needs a guardian angel when God himself is committed to guard you? He's your guardian. He might send an angel. But you don't need an angel. God is going to protect you. God is the one who gets credit even if it is an angel. God is your guardian. God is your keeper. And he will neither slumber, he won't doze off or nod off, and neither will he sleep intentionally. He doesn't say, you know, I'm tired, I need to go lay down and take a nap. Or I need to go sleep for the night. Every human shepherd does. They either fall asleep and leave the sheep vulnerable to attacks from wild animals or robbers who would come in to harm them. Or he simply says, i got to go lay down and go to sleep. And maybe he'll get somebody to replace him. God never needs any of that. He is always on watch. And that should be very encouraging to us. Even when you're in the midst of great threat and great danger, don't ever imagine that God has taken his eyes off of you. Don't ever imagine that God doesn't know exactly what's going on in your situation right now. He does. He's never asleep at the wheel. He has always got his hand on your life and your situation. There's not one moment of your life that is not covered by the eyes and the hand of God. He is actively preserving you moment by moment, day by day, forever and ever. That's the picture here. It should be very encouraging to the psalmist as he goes on this journey. Moving on into verses 5 and 6, we actually come to the very centerpiece of this psalm. Some, some Hebrew poetry, some psalms are structured in such a way you can tell exactly what the author's doing by how he's built it. And this one has a, a heart, a center. It's two words right here in the middle, the first line of verse 5. Yahweh is your keeper. That's the heart of this message. That's his identity. That's who he has made himself to be for you. He's your keeper, your protector, your guardian. And everything that flows out of this is the implications of that for your life. That's who he is. He has committed himself to be your personal guardian, your personal protector here. And in verses 5 and 6, shifting away from the shepherd metaphor, he's now being depicted as the protective parasol. Now, Like Pastor Ken last week, I sometimes get bit by the alliteration bug, and that's what you're seeing here. Parasol is not a word we typically use, but it is a thing we typically use. In fact, I saw several of them this morning on the line. Basically an umbrella. And so the idea is that God himself positions himself around your life the way that an umbrella positions over you to protect you from the external uh, a, a, a costing and aggressive nature of the sun in particular. And that's the imagery that we're working with here in these verses. 
Yahweh is your shade on your right hand, like an umbrella. And he's particularly looking at some uh, practices in the ancient world where a king of any different, think of an Egyptian pharaoh or an Assyrian king or a Babylonian king or probably even Israelite kings at times, they would be carried on a little uh, chariot kind of thing that didn't have wheels. So you've got five, four servants carrying the corners. You've seen this on TV, right? Or pictured in books. And they're, they're carrying the king. Well, there's another servant that's standing up on the platform with the king holding an umbrella or a parasol to keep his shade. But the beauty of this picture goes beyond that. This says that God himself is like that. And, and not only does he provide that kind of shade, but he, he invites you into his own shade. So the, the picture in the ancient world is sometimes the king, as they're going on in a pro- procession, would invite a commoner up on the platform to share his shade. And that's kind of what's going on here. God himself has said, you come into me and I protect you from harm, from these external harm of sun or moon by night. The image of the sun striking you, that's pretty obvious, right? If, if you've ever walked out without any covering, without any sunscreen, even on a hot day around here, it can be intense and it can certainly burn your skin. But if you think about the desert lands in some of the places in the Middle East, it can be absolutely fatal. And people here in this country die of sunstroke too. But it's a very real danger for them that they faced all the time, that the sun, being exposed to the sun too long can kill you. And that's a danger when you're walking on a journey, on a long journey, that's going to take you day and night. You're going to be walking at night as well. And so basically the image is saying God is committed to protect you from whatever dangers there are during the day and whatever dangers there are during the night. So robbers, thieves, uh, criminals that tend to come out at night to try to harm you or wild animals that are nocturnal that come out to harm you during the night. God protects you from all of that. God is the one who keeps you safe from all of those external dangers. That's the imagery that the psalmist is working with here. The final stanza, verses 7 and 8, we see Yahweh as the committed keeper. Everything ramps up as he concludes here, and you see the word keep three times in fast succession here in verses 7 and 8. But notice also the universal, staggering nature of this promise. Yahweh will keep you. Yahweh will guard you. Yahweh will protect you from all evil. All of it. There doesn't seem to be any exceptions. He will protect you from all evil. And that word evil is a flexible term. It can mean moral evil. He will protect you from sinful people doing sinful things to hurt you. Or it can be amoral evil, what we might call the brokenness of this world, where you trip and you fall down and you bust your head, or you are struck by lightning, or you are a victim of a tornado, and that kind of thing. He will keep you, guard you, protect you from all of it. Now, when we start getting into this universal blanket promise, we all start getting a little bit nervous, I think, when we think about the reality of our experience. Even some of those things that I just mentioned, some of you have probably experienced. And so the question raises immediately, does that mean God wasn't protecting me? Does that mean God let go of the wheel? Does that mean that God allowed me to get hurt? 
and he took his protection off of me. Or some people will say, did that mean that I did something that made me get out from under God's protection? Did I somehow do something wrong that made it to where God could not keep me safe? I've worded that a little bit provocatively. We don't often say it quite like that. But that's really what we're saying. We're accusing, we're accusing God of being unable to keep us. That our ability to escape His sheltering power is somehow beyond His power to keep us. And I want to say emphatically, as I have said numerous times behind this pulpit, that is absolutely, unequivocally not true. God is protecting you. Does that mean you're not going to experience pain and suffering in this life? It does not. It does not. In God's great wisdom, which is far beyond yours, or mine, or ours together, or universal human wisdom, in God's great wisdom, He often chooses to protect us in the midst of suffering. He chooses, instead of taking us out of suffering, to walk with us through suffering. And He promises, He guarantees, that every single bit of it, whatever form it takes, He uses, He turns for your benefit. I don't know how that works. And I don't feel that when I'm in the midst of some measure of suffering. I don't feel it. It hurts. There's pain. It's real pain. And to to affirm the reality that God is working for your good in the midst of the pain is not to deny the pain. God wants us to own the pain, to admit the pain, to cry out to Him in the midst of the pain, and to trust Him with the pain. And that's what... I think our psalmist is expressing here. Because if you think about the reality of these journeys to Jerusalem, people died along the way. People got sick along the way. People got robbed along the way. All of the dangers that might have been threatening or causing fear in our psalmist happened sometimes. They really did. So does that nullify the truth of the psalm, of the scriptures, of these promises? No. It means that we have to change our perspective on how we understand our experience. And that takes much more than a sermon. That takes much more than a simple pat answer to to address those kinds of questions. It takes a long time. It takes conversations. It takes weeping and walking together as a body, as believers together, to know what to do and how to keep moving forward because that's the goal. Too many of us, when we suffer, we freeze. We stop moving forward. We, begin, we become per- paralyzed by our pain. And the calling would be, and the encouragement would be, because of these promises, keep moving forward. The journey is not over. You're not there yet. Keep going. And that doesn't mean you grin and bear it. It means that you call out for help. You cry out to God and watch as He brings help to keep you moving forward one step at a time. Even in the midst of pain, even in the midst of loss, even in the midst of suffering. The point here in these verses is to say that God's commitment to keep you, to guard you, to protect you is absolute. 
It covers everything that you will face. It is intended to to prepare you to suffer. You can go into suffering. You can face loss ahead of you if you believe this. If you know it, that this is true. You will experience suffering and handle it differently than if you don't believe that this is true. And then it happens to you and you're thrown off balance and you're tempted even to turn around and run the other way or quit altogether. And the call is to keep going. He will keep your life, this all-encompassing term for who you are. Yahweh will keep your going out and your coming in. That covers everything. You're going out, you're coming in, wherever you go, whatever you're doing, the commitment is very specific here. He's going to be there to protect you. He's going to be there to guard you. No matter where you go, no matter where you're coming from, no matter how many times you've fallen down along the journey, no matter what your failures are, no matter what struggles you're facing or how you're tempted to abandon ship, He's not going to leave you. He will hold you fast. Now and forevermore. Charles Spurgeon noticed in these two verses three promises, and he had this little comment about that. He said, what anxiety can survive this triple promise? I have often turned to these verses when I'm experiencing fear and anxiety and trepidation, and I found them helpful. I've needed them in the throes of my own fears and struggles in different situations, and they've helped. Did they change anything? They didn't change anything in my circumstances, (laughs) but they did change me. They changed how I responded to what I was facing. And they can do that for you too. We want to conclude by thinking about the reality that for us as Christians, this is really all about Jesus and His commitment to us. Jesus is the protector that we look to. Jesus is the Lord that we look up to and have confidence in. And we can see this under three headings essentially. Jesus has prayed for our protection, first of all. Jesus prayed for our protection. John 17, this is really what we might call the Lord's Prayer, the prayer that Jesus expressed in the hearing of His disciples so that they recorded it for us. Him talking intimately to His Father. It's a glorious chapter. But in the midst of that, He speaks of our protection. He prays for the 11 disciples that are with him, but he also explicitly says, I also pray for those who will believe in me through their word, through the word of the apostles. Guess what? That's you. Jesus prayed specifically for you on this occasion. And you can count on the fact that he's prayed for you since then, and he's still praying for you, right? He's at the right hand of God interceding for all of us. But specific prayer here, John 17, 12 Jesus says to his father, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So why, why did the eleven remain with Jesus? Why did they not join Judas in his betrayal and abandonment of Jesus? Here's the bottom line reason. Jesus kept them. Jesus protected them from falling away in the same way that Judas did. 
Jesus actively preserved them during His three years with them. You go down a few more verses in this prayer, John 17, 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but I do ask that you keep them from the evil one. So Jesus prayed specifically that His Father would guard, would protect, would keep all of His followers throughout history from the devil, from Satan. He asked His Father to protect us from Satan. We'll say more about that in just a moment, or Jesus will. Secondly, Jesus guarantees our protection. So He prayed for it. He asked His Father to act in protecting His people, but He also guarantees our protection. John 10, earlier in John's Gospel, John 10, 28 and 29, this is Jesus claiming to be the sleepless shepherd. I am the good shepherd. Jesus said, and a part of his shepherding care for us, his sheep, is this promise. John 10, 28 and 29. I give them, I give my sheep eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Jesus is our sleepless shepherd. He will walk with us to guide us through all the dark valleys of life to ensure that we arrive at the green pastures and the still waters. We are the sheep the Father has marked out and given to Jesus. And both He and His Father work together to preserve us from utterly ruining ourselves, to protect us from false shepherds who would come to steal, kill, and destroy, and to provide for us all that we need day by day to keep us moving forward on this journey of eternal life. We are the sheep the Father has given to Jesus and the immeasurable power of both Father and Son Infinity plus infinity. Infinity times infinity. I don't know what the right math is, but it's incalculable. He's exercising that power to guard us, to protect us, to ensure our everlasting safety both now and forever. We are safe as we walk by faith in Him, one writer puts it. The mountains of life are not barriers to His presence, but places where we experience His watchful care until we arrive in the new Jerusalem where we will enjoy Him forever. If you think about your experiences of suffering as a Christian, those moments are opportunities for you to know Jesus in a way that you cannot know Him in times of plenty and comfort and no restrictions and no limitations. The times where we are hard-pressed, the times where we are crushed, the times where we are bruised and hurt are times of unique opportunity to know our Savior who was crushed, who was wounded, who was broken for us. Don't reject those. And don't miss the opportunity. We are the sheep Jesus has laid down His life to rescue. How does a dead shepherd protect his sheep? Well, this one took up his life again. 
He rose from the dead, and He sits on the throne over the universe, and He exercises His royal power and authority to gather His sheep from all over the world into His one sheepfold. He has demonstrated His unmatched omnipotence so that we might rest assured that He has the power to keep His sheep safe until we all arrive at our final destination. Jesus is guaranteed our protection. But finally, it's Jesus Himself that actually actively protects us. Jesus Himself protects us. 2 Thessalonians 3.3, the Apostle Paul writes, But the Lord is faithful, and he means the Lord Jesus specifically. The Lord Jesus is faithful. He will establish and guard you against the evil one. There's another promise. If you needed another one, there's another promise that Jesus himself is at work in your life to protect you from Satan, specifically. Jesus protects us from Satan. But more significant, at least in my experience, has been 1 John 5.18. 1 John 5.18 is a precious word that should change the way that we think about and talk about Satan or the devil in our everyday lives as Christians. It has to come into the conversation. It has to come into our thinking. John writes, 1 John 5, 18, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Now let me pause there. (laughs) That could be a very frightening word taken out of context. So he's speaking of everyone who has been born again, everyone who's been born of the Spirit. He's speaking of everyone who is a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. He's speaking of all Christians. Everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. What does he mean? Well, I think he means everyone who is a genuine believer in Jesus does not go on making a habitual practice of pursuing sin without repentance. A genuine believer in Jesus does not remain in unrepentant sin. They don't. That's a categorical statement about the nature of followers of Jesus. They do not make a habit of intentional walking in sin without repentance. But the other side of the coin that he wants to focus on here... He who was born of God, it's a very odd statement, but he's referring specifically to Jesus. So he just referred to everybody who's been born again, followers of Jesus, and now he changes the spelling of the word a little bit, changes the form to indicate he's talking about a very specific individual. He who was born of God, Jesus, protects him, protects every single individual who's been born again. He protects him. Present tense. He is at work protecting you right now in this moment. Jesus is guarding you. And what's the result of that protection? How does that protection actually look? The evil one does not touch him. The evil one does not touch him. Because Jesus is protecting you. You can count on it that Satan cannot access you. He can't. 
Jesus is standing between the devil and you. Do you think, do you think that the devil can run a route around Jesus? Do you think that the devil can crawl through Jesus' legs? Do you think that Satan can leap over Jesus to get to you? Do you think that the devil can run straight through and plow over the Lord Jesus? No, absolutely not. Jesus is standing between you and the devil. So whatever we say about satanic attacks on us as Christians, we have to keep this reality in mind. Yes, Satan is our enemy. Yes, we are warned about his schemes and his deceptions and his temptations. But Jesus is working actively to protect us from him. He is a real enemy and we are to be aware of what he does out in the world. But he cannot touch you. He can't. So all of those warnings, and there aren't really that many in the New Testament. But all of that instruction about how we're supposed to defend ourselves and to be at work against the schemes of the devil is all about challenging us not to become complicit with the devil's work out there so that we would hand ourselves over to his work. But even when we do, because the reality is we do, we do at times become traitors to our Lord Jesus. Every single one of us commits treason. And Jesus has died to pay for that treason. But even when we do, Jesus is at work to ensure that our failures and our sins and our complicity with the devil's work out in the world does not bring us into condemnation and destruction. Perhaps it's important to make a distinction between the word hurt and harm. Jesus, in these verses, we could envision as being the protective parasol, like God is depicted in this psalm, day and night, at all times, hanging on to us, protecting us from the ultimate harm Satan would like to do to us. Jesus is our committed keeper. If he who was uniquely born of God... Virgin-conceived, cross-bearing, death-defeating man, if he is committed to our ongoing protection, then whatever pain we may endure in this life, whatever loss, whatever suffering we may face in this life, we can be certain that neither Satan nor evil people under Satan's control or influence can leave a scar that Jesus won't turn for our everlasting good. Warren Wearsby puts it like this, the things that God permits to happen to us in His will may hurt us, but they will not harm us. We are all on a journey. What's the destination? Like the pilgrims who sang these psalms of ascent, we are ascending. We are going up. They went up to the earthly Jerusalem. We are going up to the heavenly Jerusalem. And in fact... In one sense, we're already there. I shared some words about this a few weeks ago in a devotional. But let me remind you if you didn't hear them. Addressing all Christians, all followers of Jesus, all pilgrim disciples. The author of Hebrews proclaims in Hebrews 12, 22, But you have come. 
perfect tense here of this Greek verb emphasizes the present reality. You're already there. You have arrived. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Paul spoke similarly, addressing all Christians, all followers of Jesus, all pilgrim disciples. In Ephesians 2.6, he said that God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly places. And he describes this as an established fact, a done deal. Something that happened to us the moment we began to trust in Jesus. We'd be right to sit in stunned silence for a while, pondering what that even means. In some spiritual sense, we have already arrived at the heavenly Jerusalem. We are citizens of that great city now. And our spirits are so united to Jesus that where He is, so we are truly. But our bodies long to be there too. So we remain pilgrims on a journey to arrive at the heavenly city. We keep marching towards Zion with these broken bodies, knowing that no fallen, broken, weak, frail flesh and blood can enter there. Instead, we will enter those gates. We will see what the Apostle John saw only in a vision. We will see the new Jerusalem. The new heaven, the new earth with resurrected eyeballs. And we will enter the new Jerusalem with resurrected bodies. We can be sure that our good shepherd will walk with us and preserve us until that day. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, thank you for these great words. Thank you for your commitment to keep us to preserve us, to protect us, to guard us along this journey. There are real dangers in this world. There are real threats. But you have secured us so that we can say with full confidence, we are safe in your hands no matter what happens, no matter what comes, no matter what circumstances look like. There is a dark valley of the shadow of death to walk through. But our good shepherd has already walked through, blazed the trail ahead of us, and he knows the way. And he walks with us to ensure that we will make it through. We thank you that you have committed us to his care and that your immeasurable power is at work to hold us steady when we might stumble along the way. Thank you that we can count on you. Thank you that even as we hold your hand by faith, you are holding our hands by your omnipotent, overwhelming, unbreakable grace. And your grip never fails, even though our faith does. Thank you, Father. Thank you for ensuring that your children will make it home to live with you in the new home that you've prepared for us forever and ever and ever. We give you glory. We give you praise for what you've done and what you're continuing to do in our lives. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.